We're going to jump into Luke 21 this morning. So um, let me pray for our time and we'll, we'll, we'll look at, these, at this chapter. Father, thank you for uh, this time of year when we can celebrate. Uh, we call it Good Friday, but Father, it, it's hard to consider that it was good and, until we realize what it's done for us that his death redeemed us, and that makes it good. And Father, I, I thank you for that that wasn't the end of the story, that he rose from the dead, and we can celebrate that. And Father, um, this morning as we're going through this, this chapter in, in Luke, I pray that your spirit would reveal to us the truth you want us to, to recognize and you do so in a way that changes us and glorifies you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we are in Luke 21. So um, this is, fittingly, is in the Passion Week. So Jesus has made his way to Jerusalem and that's the scene where we're going we're gonna to pick up. And um, I'll be honest with you, these first few verses in chapter 21 are, are some of the hardest verses for me to teach because of, and you'll understand as I go through it, it's just difficult to, to, for me to really grasp very well. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Um, what had Jesus rebuked these leaders for at the end of chapter 20? Anybody remember that? You can even, I'll give you a second to look back. They had done something with widows, right? It, it, he called it devouring. So they had, they had been stealing from widows, uh, the common thing at that point in time was was to put up a a fictitious lien against a widow's property and take her to court. And if she wasn't smart enough or savvy enough to fight it, she would lose her property in court. So it was not a good thing the way they were treating widows. He rebuked them for devouring widows' houses. So what's the scene that he observes in the temple here? You got people giving, right? So he, he first observes the rich putting their gifts in the offering box. And then he watches a poor widow put in two small copper coins. These were probably what is called lepta. They're worth about 
a hundredth of a day's wage. So they maybe are worth a dollar a piece. So she puts in the only two dollars that she has. Um, what does it mean to be poor? And this is where I struggle in, in teaching this. I have never experienced being poor. Probably most of us in this room have never really experienced being poor. Being poor is in being in need, right? It's being in need of your basic necessities of food, clothing, and shelter. It's like, I've never experienced that. Um, Despite her need, it says she gave all that she had. This was her last $2. And she gave it as an act of worship to promote kingdom work. And you see, my struggle is, you know, in this country, we're all, by world standards, we're all wealthy. And if any of you have ever traveled overseas very much, you, you recognize it. I know, Chad, you have. And, and you've been to probably worse places than I have. But I know when I was in Romania and I got to know them and they would ask, they'd ask you hard questions sometimes like, how big is your house? Or how many cars do you have? Or you know, something like that. Or, you know, when they heard that my wife had cancer, they're like, well, well, how do you, what are you going to do? I was like, well, how do you afford the treatment? Well, the insurance pays for it, you know? And they, I mean, they just, they just don't understand what our lifestyle is like unless they've experienced it. Because they've been poor. They've been in need. And I've never experienced that. So how does he compare the two giving examples? You know, he states the poor widow has given more than all of the rich people because she gave out of her poverty and they gave out of their abundance, their surplus. So, uh, you know, there's no doubt the rich gave more than her $2. They gave you know, what we would consider probably hundreds or whatever. But they didn't give sacrificially like she did. And he's commending her more than he's criticizing them. He's, he's not really being critical of their giving, but he's commending her giving. And uh, this was convicting to me because I've never given all that I had. I mean, I'll give, but it's out of my abundance. It's not, I've never experienced poverty. It's hard. Um, 
going on, he says, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So what's the surprising message here? I mean, they're in the temple, and he tells them what? It's going, it's going down. He says, not one stone will be left upon another. I mean, it's going to be flattened. But you've just been over there. It's still not there. Yeah, I mean, it's flattened. Um, these are probably followers of Jesus. They're admiring it. Some of these stones were over 50 feet long. I mean, they were massive marble stones. It was, it was a magnificent place. Um, many of them were covered with gold and beautiful stones. They're in awe of it. But he tells them it's going to be destroyed, that it's not permanent. Um, so they want to know. They ask him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So what, what does this question reveal about his followers? Are they showing doubt? I don't think they are. I see Abby kind of shaking her head a little bit. No, they're, they're not really showing doubt. They believe what he said, but they want to know when. Yeah, they want to know when. They're not doubting his prophecy, but they want to know, okay, when do we get out of here? You know, we like coming here, but if it's going to be destroyed, I don't want to be in the building when the rocks are falling. Um, and he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So what's the warning he gives as he begins his reply? What are they to watch out for? False messiahs, right? You know, though imposters. Do we have that problem today? Whoa, do we? What's one of the telltale signs of an imposter? Yeah, yeah. So they'll, they'll want to add to the word of God, right? One trip when we were in Romania, we got a chance, a few of us got a chance to go into one of these so-called religions, and it, it was pretty much a cult behind big walls and everything, and we got in there, and they, you know, they kind of toured us around, and then they showed us their book. 
So they had their book that they was their additional revelation that they had. I'd happened to carry my Bible with me, and so I told them, you know, well, what, what do you think about where it says you're not supposed to add to the Bible? And the poor little girl that was touring us was kind of dumbfounded. And the, the, the big gray-bearded guy comes up and asks us politely to leave at that point. But it was... It was a little interesting, but that's a a telltale sign. They will add to the Word of God, which is prohibited. They'll also misinterpret it, so they'll, they'll take it, and instead of letting the Bible determine what they believe, they interpret the Bible based on what they want to believe. And those sound very similar, but they're very different. You know, there's a real danger in, in, you know, forming our beliefs and then trying to make the Bible fit them. We need to let the Bible determine what we believe. It was a clear warning that he gave about false messiahs. Um, He said there's going to be many of these imposters, and there are many today. Um, what does he state must take place first? When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. So I kind of I googled wars right now. There's at least 20 major conflicts that are underway around the world, and that's. If you look in history, there have always been active wars at at any time. It's just part of fallen humanity. Uh, And then there's there's numerous minor ones. This is the normal chaos of fallen humanity. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So again, more wars. And there will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So, what's the other events? We don't get too many of them down here. Earthquakes. um, We got to live in Alaska for six years. It's part of my work. And I remember the first time we experienced an earthquake, um, I heard it before I felt it. And it, it was because it was a fairly shallow earthquake, and so the sound, the way the sound waves travel, they got there before the earthquake. It was during the night, and it sounded like an 18-wheeler coming down our street. And then I, it kind of dawned on me, we live on a cul-de-sac. There's no 18-wheeler. What is this? <laughs> and then about that time, the house started shaking, and it, it wasn't. a a large earthquake, but it was enough and it was long enough to where I could go down and check on the kids and we had a a friend staying with us and I woke him up because he was like, hey man, we're in an earthquake. And uh, it was pretty pretty wild. But at any point in time, on average, there's like 18 major earthquakes a year and that's 7-0 on the Richter scale. 
Uh, I've never experienced a seven. These were like fives or something. They were fairly minor. So a major earthquake, there's a lot of them every year. Um, it says famine and pestilence. Well, I mean, we've just been going through this pandemic for however long you want to say it's it happened. I'd like to think it's over, but people still get it. Um, but then he says there'll be terrors and great signs from heaven. These other things have been normal occurrences, but the terrors and signs from heaven, I think they're supernatural things that are really signifying, okay, the end time is is imminent. It's coming. All these other things happen on an annual basis. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So before this end time, what's going to happen to believers? Persecution, right? He's going to explain it a little more, but it's, it's physical persecution as well as verbal. I mean, they're going to take them before the synagogue and, and even throw them in prison. They're going to be brought before kings and governors. Um, what does he call these events? Opportunity. If you were being arrested for professing Christ, or uh, let's not even go that far, maybe you get in trouble at school because you told somebody about Jesus. What would you consider that? If you told one of your students that Christ was the only way, and they went and complained to the principal. I get in trouble. You get in trouble. Jesus says that's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to share the truth with an audience that probably wouldn't have heard it otherwise. Quite a different perspective than than I would have had. I don't often consider persecution as an opportunity, especially the persecution he's talking about, which is probably more severe than anything that typically happens in this country. There are openings for the, to spread the gospel message. He goes on to say, Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, 
For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So how should we prepare for this persecution? You need to study up, right? Well, he basically doesn't say that. He says to trust in him. I think, you know, prayer is obviously something that God would want us to do to to pray for him to guide us through persecution. But we're to trust him to guide our actions and our words. And then he says our message can't be dismissed. He said they won't be able to withstand or contradict it. The persecution may be difficult, it, uh, you know, being persecuted by a family member or, or being killed for your faith is, is pretty difficult. But he, he says, why, why is this going to occur? Well, this hatred is because of our association with Christ. He says, it's, it's all for my name's sake, for the name of Jesus Christ. When we associate with him, we should expect persecution. Now, in verse 16 and, and 17, 17, 18 in there, it almost seems like he contradicts himself because he says, some of you will be put to death, but then he says, not a hair of your head will perish. Well, which is it? It's both, right? So, Physically, some may be martyred, but spiritually, they have eternal life. As believers, not a a hair of their head will perish. Eternally, they, they will live, but physically, they, they may die. So it's this earthly life you may lose, but your eternal life is secure as a believer. So it's not a contradiction. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant or for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So, When does this fall of Jerusalem occur? AD 70 is, you know, commonly the thought. There are different ways of interpreting it. Luke states this destruction will 
occur before the time of the Gentiles. So I think he's, it's referring to A.D. 70 when the army of Titus destroyed the city and the temple. There were literally thousands of Jews killed at that point in time. In fact, Josephus says he estimates that over a million Jews were killed, which some struggle with that number because there weren't that many people in Jerusalem, but it could be people, Jews coming in. But it was, it was a horrific time, and the, the temple has never been, thus far has not been rebuilt. Will there be another fall of Jerusalem? So let me, I I jumped over to Matthew because there's a parallel passage in Matthew 24 that says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the ones who, are, who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. When did this abomination of desolation take place? So there was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple in, um, I think it was 168, 168 B.C. So that obviously is an abomination of desolation. This Matthew passage is talking about a future one. At the time it was written, he's not talking about the the previous one. He's talking about a future one. So there are two ways of common ways that this is interpreted. One is that, okay, this destruction of the temple in AD 70 was this abomination of desolation. Then that makes it consistent with the Luke passage. Another way of interpreting it is that it's speaking of the tribulation period that's described in Revelation 13. Now, Ken takes the the first approach he feels like the AD 70 was probably that time period. I personally think it's the Revelation 13. Um, it's not a salvation issue. Very likely we're both wrong, but who knows? Um, there are different ways it's interpreted. And uh, this is is very common in with with end times prophecies is that we we don't really understand them completely. And I, I think it's on purpose that God does that. He doesn't, he, he leaves a lot of gray in the interpretation so 
will be, always be ready. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So what's the time period that Luke's describing here? How does it differ from the earlier description of destruction? He says it's following this time of the Gentiles. But before the return of Christ, there's going to be these supernatural events. And he says they're going to be evident to the nations. So they're not just local. It's going to be a worldwide event that people can see. They're signs to call people to repentance prior to the return of Christ. And this return is as the conquering king. He came the first time as the suffering servant. And he returned as the conquering king. And he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So what's this little short parable? We got trees budding right now, right? I mean, the oak pollen dumped a couple of weeks ago and yeah leaves are popping out everywhere now um, he uses this this tree illustration um, trees are very deciduous trees trees that drop their leaves are very predictable they drop their leaves in the fall and then they sprout new leaves in the future in the spring excuse me and it's a clear sign that spring has arrived and summer's on the way. Um, he's saying in a similar way, when you see these supernatural signs, know that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's imminent. He's coming back. So if you watch for these signs carefully, you won't be shocked when Christ returns. You can expect him when you start to see these supernatural signs. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So who is this generation? Was he talking about the generation of the disciples that he spoke to? 
he didn't return in their lifetime. All these things didn't happen in their lifetime. So it can't be their generation. The best interpretation is that I that I read was if if these supernatural signs are happening in your generation then that generation will not pass away until Christ returns. So once these signs start to happen, his return is imminent. It's going to happen quickly. I'd like for it to be tomorrow, but but the signs haven't started yet, so... But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. What's the warning he gives? Yeah, don't get caught up in things of the world that distract you and keep you from recognizing these signs of the time. You know, stay alert so you can observe the signs that the kingdom of God is at hand. Don't get distracted by, and some of these worldly activities are not sinful. Some of them are. And they keep you from being prepared for when Christ returns. How are we to stay ready? He says, you know, we're to stay awake at all times. Well, that's being alert to observe what's going on around you. Um, he, He urged his followers earlier to be diligent in fulfilling their responsibilities. You know, as we're doing these things, it helps us to not get distracted by the things of the world. Um, What do we need the strength to escape? Well, part of it are these destructive events, but it's also the persecution, he says, believers are going to face. Um, even martyrdom. Note that the strength comes from what? Personal ability? No. The strength comes from prayer. We expect to withstand Severe persecution, it's through prayer. It's not our, you know, personal ability. Or And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called, called Olivet, 
And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So they're approaching Passover. So what's he doing? He's teaching during the day, going off to stay with, actually, other passages say he he stayed in Bethany. It's right next to the Mount of Olives, uh, likely with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. We don't know for sure. Um, but he was teaching in the temple and likely drawing a, a large crowd. And that would prevent him from being arrested during the day because the Jewish leaders didn't want to cause a riot. They'd get in trouble with the Romans if they did that. At night, he was lodging probably in a secluded place that provided security. Um, He protected himself from arrest until the right time. But he also remained focused on his ministry despite the imminent suffering that he was going to, he knew about. He knew what was going to happen to him. Despite knowing that, he continues to teach and spread his message of good news. He's certainly an example of someone who finished strong. The Bible has a lot of characters in it that didn't finish strong. Jesus is one who did. So what are some principles here? Well, from this, the widow's giving, we saw that God is concerned with what we withhold, not in just how much we give. The rich gave out of their surplus. She, she gave all that she had. Believers are to remain alert for the return of Christ. You know, he's, he's told us there's different things that are going to happen, signs that are going to occur. So we, we need to watch for those. And then we should not be surprised when persecution occurs when we take a stand for Christ. What did he call those? Call them opportunities. If we get persecuted for our faith, we should consider it an opportunity to share the gospel. So how sacrificial is your giving? How are you guarding your behavior and, and using your resources? Those are things we can do to remain alert. And do you look at persecution as an opportunity to witness? That's what Christ called it, an opportunity. Any questions or comments?
close our time in prayer. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and that you've given us this truth so we can live differently. And you want us to live alert, ready for your imminent return. You've, get, you, you've promised to give us signs that will help us understand when that will, will be. Help us to, to diligently watch for those things that we won't be caught off guard. Father, when we're persecuted, help us to, to remember your word. You, you told us these are opportunities to share truth with others. Help us to do that in a way that glorifies you and, and draws others to Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.